Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, And apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 38, The Last Battle. As always, when we come to big events, or in for a long one today. It's been a whirlwind series of episodes. When I sat down to start episode 31 on the Naxos incident, I thought this was going to be a four or five episode arc, and then I'd do four or five cultural and thematic episodes, and then I'd come back to start the wars in Greece after finishing the Ionian Revolt. Episode 38 is not a cultural episode. I always try to do a summary, but given how long this series was, I think it's worthwhile to take more than just one paragraph and see where we've been recently. In reality, this all started way back in episode 24, Darius the Great. After defeating the Liar Kings and establishing himself on the throne, Darius went about adding new lands and peoples to the Persian Empire. He added some Saka, he conquered the Indus Valley, his satrap in Egypt conquered Cyrenaica, and then Darius himself led the first Persian foray into Europe. There, the Persian army chased Scythians of southeast Europe into the steppe. They crossed the Danube and just kept going until the Persians were forced to give up the chase. While they were on their way back, the Scythians tried to convince some Greek commanders in the Persian fleet, who were guarding Darius's crossing on the Danube, to abandon the Persian king. A Greek tyrant named Histias convinced them all to stay loyal. Darius returned to Asia, and General Megabazos conquered Thrace and forced Macedon into submission. As a reward, Histias was allowed to govern a colony in Thrace, but when it was revealed that this was secretly a silver mine meant to enhance his own prestige without taxation, the tyrant was sent into forced retirement with the Persian court. His son-in-law, Aristagoras, became the ruler of their city, Miletus. For more than a decade, things basically went back to normal. That's when I talked about the text of the Behistun inscription, did the grand tour of the empire, and introduced Persepolis. Then, in 499 BCE, Aristagoras and Artaphernes, satrap of Lydia and brother to the king, orchestrated a Persian invasion of Naxos, the largest island in the Cyclades. Naxos repulsed the invaders, leaving Aristagoras in debt, Miletus's treasury depleted, and the Greeks with a growing sense that the Persians were past their prime. Aristagoras went into revolt. 
He rallied the Ionian Greeks to his side, abolished the Persian-backed tyrannies, got some allies from mainland Greece, and made ready for war. The Greeks, a combination of Ionians, Athenians, and Eritreans, struck the first blow and burned the satrapal capital at Sardis. Before they could even return to their ships and go back to Miletus, Persian cavalry caught up to them and destroyed that army outside of Ephesus. The Athenians and Eritreans abandoned the cause, but the other Greeks in Anatolia and Cyprus joined in. In 497 BC, four simultaneous Persian campaigns dispersed throughout the Lydian satrapy and the island of Cyprus to contain the revolt. By 494, the Persians launched a dual land and sea invasion of the rebel capital at Miletus and crushed the rebels' capacity to organize. Over the following year, the rest of the Greek resistance in Anatolia and the neighboring parts of Europe was crushed, including Histias of Miletus, who briefly returned to carve out a minor kingdom all for himself. Though Ionia was settled, Persian dominance in Thrace and Macedon had waned, so the young general Mardonius was sent to reassert Persian control. Though he was personally injured in a Thracian surprise attack, and his fleet was wrecked off of Mount Athos, the campaign was nominally successful, if underwhelming. The next year, 491 BCE, saw a Persian diplomatic invasion of Greece, especially in the islands in the northern part of the mainland, Persian ambassadors secured earth and water as tokens of submission or surrender. Aside from some internal politics and diplomatic incidents at Sparta and Athens, the diplomatic campaign was a success. But in 490, a new military campaign was launched. The Aegean islands, including Naxos and Eritrea, were seized and conquered. With Eritrea under their heels, the Persians moved on to confront Athens itself. Commanded by Datis the Mede, a specialist in Greek affairs, and Artaphernes, the son of the satrap of the same name and nephew of Darius the Great, this invasion force made landfall in northeast Attica and encamped on a seaside plain. So that's where we left off, with our Persian army encamped on a wide-open plain next to the sea. It was an ideal place to start their invasion. The powerful and world-renowned Persian cavalry had room to both graze and maneuver. All approaches were clear and open for the Sparabara to set up their huge wicker shield walls and archers to arrange themselves behind to loose arrows on any approaching force. The only disadvantage was that they were ever so slightly downhill, but that's just the nature of being on the coast. This plane, of course is the infamous plain of Marathon. So what did this camp look like? Or rather, what did the people there look like? There's no description or evidence, but the camp was probably kind of unremarkable. A bunch of tents, grander or lesser depending on the occupant, probably some basic fortifications, and makeshift horse paddocks. It's not like the later Romans who were noted for their organized encampments. The first question is how many people? The 600 ships offered by Herodotus seem like a plausible starting point. We have lots of sources for Persian fleets operating in units of 3s and 300s. But were those 600 trireme warships with additional horse, troop, and cargo ships? 
Was it 600 ships carrying men and additional ships for horses and supplies? Was it 600 total? We have no way to really know. 600 triremes would have carried about 20,000 infantrymen with relative ease. If 600 was supplemented by or included ships designed purely for troop transport, the number of soldiers can rise quickly to 30, 40, or even 50,000. If that 600 includes cargo and horse transports, then 20,000 becomes more of an upper limit. Given that no modern scholars seem to think that the 600 ships included cargo, because Herodotus keeps the two numbers separate in other discussions, I think 20 to 30,000 seems plausible. You'll see 25,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry shopped around by a lot of modern historians. As far as I can tell, those numbers originate in Peter Green's The Greco-Persian Wars. They seem like fair estimates. Studies dedicated to the Achaemenid military indicate that the army was organized in units of 10,000 whenever possible. So a number closer to 20 or 30,000 might be a little more accurate, but 25 is a good estimate in the middle of those two. When not organizing in a Bivara bomb of 10,000 men, troops moved in a Hazara bomb of 1,000, so the cavalry number is pretty much acceptable on its own. Herodotus is often criticized for his wildly exaggerated and unreliable numbers, but he doesn't actually provide any numbers of any sort for the battle at Marathon. The only contemporary number comes from Simonides, a poet who says 200,000 Persians, which is entirely unrealistic. As time went on, the legend of Marathon exaggerated the size of the Persian army further and further, peaking at 600,000 in Justin's epitome of Pompeius Trogus, obviously a completely ridiculous number for any army at this point in time. So who were these 25-ish thousand soldiers of Darius the king? Well, obviously there were ethnic Persians, and mixed in with them were probably some Medes and maybe even Mesopotamians or other neighbors that the Greek writers couldn't properly identify. Herodotus also specifies Saka, nomads from the steppe, in the Persian infantry. Though they are normally associated with horsemanship, there's no reason that there couldn't have been Saka infantry. That said, it's quite likely that Herodotus's sources just identified all sorts of eastern and northern Iranian groups, like Hyrcanians, Aracosians, and Bactrians, together as Saka including probably also some actual Saka and Scythians. Herodotus also mentions Iolic and Ionian Greeks, recently resubjugated from their own rebellion as members of the Persian fleet. They aren't mentioned at Marathon, but they too may have been present. What we don't hear about are other peoples from the Western Empire that the Greeks would have recognized. No Lydians, Egyptians, or Phoenicians though there would certainly have been some of the latter in the fleet. That means this was either a largely Iranian army, maybe the standing core of the Achaemenid military, or that the provincial conscripts were in Persian dress and thus indistinguishable. For my money, I suspect that this was probably the trained standing core of the Persian military, recruited from the Iranian and Mesopotamian peoples of the Central Empire, and then augmented with just a few recruits from other places 
That is certainly what Herodotus seems to imply, and many of those forces would already have been deployed in the region during the Ionian Revolt. Other forces, like, say, the Lydians and their neighbors in Anatolia, may have been exhausted and rotated out after continuously campaigning for most of the last decade. So we have about 25,000 largely Iranian or Sakan infantry, and 1,000 cavalry, probably of a similar makeup. Cavalry in the ancient world was extremely expensive, given the horses and equipment, and was thus made up from the nobility. In this case, that would mean Persians and Medes. In the Achaemenid military, the Saka, Bactrians, and other peoples from the steppe were also available to provide their famed horse archers. That said, the Persians and Medes inherited much of that from steppe cavalry lifestyle in their Proto-Indo-Iranian ancestors, and probably practiced a lot of the same tactics all on their own. Either way, this blends with the description of the Persians and Saka offered by Herodotus. Once again, the Anatolian contingent we might have expected from the invasion force is missing. The Lydians were known for their own cavalry tradition, and almost certainly would have been commented on by Greek sources, so we should probably assume that they were absent. So that's the Persian invasion force which does actually seem to have been largely Persian in terms of the actual people involved. They are encamped less than 30 miles from the walls of Athens on the plain called Marathon, situated somewhere between the four small cities called the Tetrapolis in northeast Attica, one of which was the city of Marathon itself. We don't actually hear about what those four cities did in response to tens of thousands of Persians setting up shop right next door, but we can probably assume that they sent a messenger south to Athens and let them know what was happening. So that leads us to, what was the Athenian response? Well, panic. Panic was probably the first response. That would be the logical thing to do, right? This is an army from the largest, most powerful empire ever to have existed. They are fresh off a war against people who fight and think like the Athenians, where they utterly crushed the Greeks in city after city after city. That was even a war where this army destroyed an Athenian force in one of the first battles. There were probably veterans from the Battle of Ephesus in Athens while all of this was happening. While everyone else was doing that, and probably once they had dealt with some of their own panicked thoughts, the next step was for the Athenian generals to convene a war council. This probably would have been a small assembly of the 11 leading generals in Athens, as well as maybe some of the other leading politicians like the chief archons. Athens had 10 tribes, or genoi, which may have had their ancient roots in actual tribal politics and organization, but by 490 they were just a system for organizing the population of Attica into groups for administrative and electoral purposes. Think like a modern voting district, but based on family lines instead of geographic position. Each of these tribes appointed a general. In addition to those ten generals, there was also the Polemarch, one of the three primary archons who was elected to act as commander-in-chief for the year. This year, that was a man by the name of Callimachus. These eleven or so men would have been the first ones to issue the call and call up the entire Athenian militia. Remember, 
most Greek city-states had no standing army. They also would have been the ones to decide which allies to call on for aid and what strategy to employ against the Persians. The crucial decision to make at the moment would be whether to try and beat the Persians through endurance and a siege, or might and a battle. Ultimately, the decision was made to call on the most powerful enemy they had available and face the Persians in open battle. Part of the reasoning here was almost certainly an attempt to keep the Persians from rampaging through Attica. Left unchecked, if the Athenians stayed behind their walls, the Persian army could eventually move away from Marathon and just raid and pillage the countryside to starve Athens out. Though Callimachus was theoretically the overall commander, Herodotus says that all ten of the other generals, including the Polemarch, deferred to the expertise of Miltiades. Miltiades, you might remember, was the former tyrant of the Thracian Chersonese, who had traveled as part of the Persian Empire during Darius's Scythian campaign in 513, but gone into revolt with the other Greeks in 499. When the Persian fleet sailed up to the Hellespont in 493, he abandoned his tyranny and fled back to Athens, where he had since become a prominent politician. As the Athenian general with the most experience with the Persian army, limited as it may have actually been, Miltiades took on the role of chief strategist. The Athenians mustered every hoplite foot soldier they had, totaling at most 10,000, the number given by some of our much later Roman sources. This is comparable to the number Herodotus gives for the full strength of Athens a decade later. This was probably augmented by peltasts, the poorer, lightly armored javelin throwers and slingers of a Greek army, and that may have helped close the numbers gap, but they were still facing an army about twice their size. Those aren't good odds in any situation, but especially not on the open plain of Marathon, where Persian cavalry had room to build up speed and come crashing down on the Athenians as they had at Ephesus, and probably some other battles in Ionia. The Athenians themselves had no real way to counter that, because outside of a few small areas like Marathon and some of the space up in the north of Greece far away from Athens, the Greek landscape isn't very cavalry-friendly. Greek warfare had evolved at this point to focus on infantry because they could maneuver better through the rough terrain of the Greek countryside. In a military ecosystem where they were used to fighting other Greeks, the Athenians were not prepared to fight cavalry on their own territory. Thus, the Athenians needed allies, and sent for the strongest, largest, and best-prepared military power they could hope to have with them. Sparta. The terrain of Greece is rocky, hilly, and unfriendly to horses moving at speed, like I said. Thus, urgent messages were sent by runner. The best messenger in Athens was Pheidippides, who took off as fast as he could to cover the vast 225 kilometers or 140 miles to Sparta. He arrived and found the usually austere and militant city in the midst of celebration. It was the Carnea, a festival honoring the god Apollo and celebrating the start of the harvest season. It was a one-week period in which Spartan warfare was forbidden. 
The Spartans, presumably King Leotychidas, acting as war leader, gave their word to join Athens, but said they could not set out until the end of the week. That meant it would be almost a full week before the Spartans could join Athens at Marathon. Presumably exhausted and worried, Pheidippides, or maybe a Spartan messenger, returned to Athens and informed them of the problem. Now, I'm usually pretty neutral on the subject of other people's religions, even dead ancient ones. But I've gotta say, it seems really inconvenient that the most militant state in Greece forbade warfare for a week at the height of the campaign season. At the very least, it will prove to be a more than one-time problem for both Athens and Sparta. But also, it would turn out to benefit the Persians more than once. Fortunately for the Athenians, about 1,000 Plataeans from the neighboring city to the north were willing to join their fight. It was a much smaller polis, and the single thousand didn't do much to even the odds against Persia, but it was a valuable show of support and probably propped up the Athenian morale just a little bit. At least somebody was on their side. The Athenians and the Plataeans arrived at Marathon to find the Persians encamped where they had arrived, barely off the beach with their ships anchored just to the north next to some marshland. Datis and Artaphernes had made the critical error of staying in this spot for too long. They were encamped between two small rivers outlets into the sea and the surrounding marshland. That gave them nowhere to go north or south. Still basically on the beach, the east only offered the Mediterranean. This was the first blunder of Datis and Artaphernes, which provided the Athenians with a crucial opportunity. They set up some quick fortifications, or maybe fortified an existing grove of trees, to give themselves some cover from Persian archers on top of a hill called Mount Agriolichi, and then boxed the Persians in from the west. Once they had them penned in, the Greeks just had to wait and hope that A, they weren't giving the Persian cavalry enough room to build up a real attack, and B, the Persian fleet didn't just swing down, pick up their guys, and rush them off to some other landing point. If they could just wait long enough, the Spartans could arrive and even the odds. As things stood, the Persians had the advantage of overwhelming numbers, reputation, and probably experience in an infantry fight, but the Greeks had the benefit of equipment. In a straight infantry charge, the Athenians could certainly repulse and maybe even deal heavy losses to the Persian soldiers. Persians were typically lightly armored if they were armored at all, probably wearing lamellar or scaled mail armor under their tunics, both of which are basically just different versions of small plates of metal linked together. And that was just if they were noble or had some other status. Otherwise, they may have worn linothorax, a sort of quilted linen gambeson, or no armor at all. We don't have much evidence for Persian helmets, but their shields were mostly wicker, and the bulk of their troops were sparabara, archers who lined up behind a wall of wicker shields and tried to wear the enemy down through attrition, firing volley after volley of arrows. In event of a melee or a charge, they were equipped with small-bladed sagaris axes and short-curved copus swords. 
only a minority would have been equipped with spears, probably about five to six feet in length, intended for charging against an opponent. The Greeks, on the other hand, were hoplites. Heavily armored with bronze or iron breastplates, helmets, and greaves, only occasionally wearing linothorax for its maneuverability. Their shields were large and made of heavy wood and bronze. Their spears, six feet at a minimum, were often longer. If the spear broke, only then were they reduced to using their short swords. They were designed for man-to-man combat. Their heavy equipment made them less vulnerable to typical Persian arrows, but they were vulnerable to cavalry attacks, even from light Persian chargers. The Persian horsemen were also lightly armored, similar to the infantry, but usually depicted with helmets and a cuirass, some kind of chest protection. The horses themselves seem to have gone unarmored. They are thought to have been a largely missile-based cavalry. No, their horses didn't fire rockets. In this case, missile just means any projectile. They would loose arrows from their bows or throw short javelins at their enemies. Like the Sparabara, this was intended to wear down an army and inflict damage at a distance. But the speed and maneuverability and force of a cavalry charge also had the potential to confuse and disrupt an enemy formation and formation was key to hoplite warfare. The hoplite formation was called a phalanx. The phalanx was built from several rows of men, one behind the next. Their spears aimed forward. Those spears protruded from a wall of big, round hoplon shields carried by each man. Each hoplite held his shield slightly to the left in order to overlap just a bit with the man next to him. All of this at the expense of an exposed right flank created a scale-like wall of discs that was difficult to break through. But if several men died or broke formation in one place because, for example, they were hit by a volley of arrows and thought they were about to be run over by enemy horses, the strength of the formation broke. The hoplites were packed so closely together and enemies that could push into the midst of their formation could kill and force a retreat. After almost a decade of fighting Greek armies, the Persians absolutely knew this, and so did the Athenians. If the full might of Sparta were at their side, the Athenians and Plataeans would probably have had the ability to attack, but with a 2 or 3 to 1 disadvantage, things were much less certain. Herodotus says, that the Athenian generals argued back and forth and back and forth about whether or not to attack. The two sides sat, with the Persians blocked into the plain of Marathon by the the Athenian hoplites, for four days. Then, on the fifth day, something snapped. On either August 7th or September 7th of 490 BCE, the armies clashed. It's not totally clear which ancient Greek calendar is being referenced by our sources, and so there's a little bit of guesswork. Like so many great events in history, we don't know who struck first. There is a theory that the Persians attacked themselves. Tired of waiting at Marathon indefinitely, anxious about the water on three sides, and probably aware that reinforcements would arrive soon, 
they tried to break out, and the Athenians responded. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. I'm personally doubtful of this. First of all, that's not the story that the ancient sources provide us with. And second, the story they do provide us with describes tactics and events that don't at all match what would be required for a Persian offensive. The Persian archers weren't in range for the Greek lines. The Greeks formed up for a charge according to Miltiades' strategy, and crucially, the Persian cavalry go entirely unaddressed. Our two major Greek sources— Herodotus and the lost historian Ephorus's through Diodorus Siculus agree on all of those points. Herodotus tells us the story of the Athenian decision-making process. The ten tribal generals came to an impasse. Five were in favor of attacking the Persians now, and five were insistent that they wait for Sparta. Miltiades, leading the attack party, looked to Callimachus, the polemarch, for the deciding vote, and told him that he would be the savior of Athens if he protected his people from Persian oppression, but only if he voted to attack. Callimachus sided with Miltiades, who was given full tactical command of the army. Miltiades stretched his army out between the two streams on either side of the plain, with the Plataeans functioning as the left wing of the army. He made the bold decision to pull men away from the center and reinforce the wings. So now, the phalanxes on the left and right extremities of the Greek formation were much deeper than usual, but there were only a few lines at the Greek center. This is one of the biggest pieces of evidence that we're looking at an Athenian offensive strike. A defensive line, trying to hold the Persians in place for a few more days, would have been crazy to weaken the center like that. It was basically creating a weak point right in the middle of Persian efforts to break through their lines. 
but by strengthening those flanks, Miltiades was able to exert more pressure on specific parts of the Persian formation. That's an offensive tactic. Once they heard that the Athenians were putting all 10 or 11,000 men in formation, the Persians probably got their 20 or 30,000 in line as well. The Sparabara planted their Spara shields in the ground and the archers prepared to loose their payload. The spearmen armed themselves and prepared to clash with their enemies. The cavalry are nowhere to be found. No narrative of the Battle of Marathon or the events that come after satisfyingly explains this. Despite being the obvious Persian advantage and the things that the Greeks feared most, the cavalry are wholly absent from the battle scenes in Herodotus. He went through the trouble of acknowledging them in his earlier buildup, but they just aren't there. The only pre-modern explanation is offered by a Greek encyclopedia called the Suda, an entry from the phrase Choris Hippion uses the Persians at Marathon as an example of Choris Hippion, meaning without cavalry. The thing is, the Suda is not ancient Greek, but Byzantine, from the 10th century AD. It is known to have made use of many now-lost classical sources, but we don't know if that's the case here. It could just be the same inference that modern scholars make. Still, modern scholars have arrived at the same position on their own. It is quite possible, even probable, that the Persian cavalry just were gone that day. Maybe they had gotten past, or been allowed to pass, the Athenian line, and had gone out to forage, hunt, scout, or raid the Attic countryside. This could even have been an attempt to draw Athenian forces away from Marathon. If Miltiades really did just allow them to pass, that's the real stroke of genius here. Without the cavalry, the Athenians had their opening to break the stalemate before the Persians decided to test their luck. Once everyone was in formation, the rest was up to the gods. Quite literally. Like any good ancient army, the Athenians offered animal sacrifices to their deities and read the omens they believed were present. Only when that divine signal proved favorable did they make their advance. Of course, many of these armies would just repeatedly sacrifice animals until they got one that they liked. At the start, they were standing eight stadia from the Persians. That's about a kilometer and a half, just over a mile. Herodotus says they just charged the whole distance, which seems improbable. The better theory is that they marched in slow, methodical fashion, the way hoplites were supposed to, for the first 1,300 meters or so, and then broke into a loosely ordered charge. Why charge? Why expend the energy and break the phalanx that gave the hoplites their strength? Because those last 200 or so meters put them within range of the Persian archers, and every second they stayed between that 200 meter mark and the wicker shields was one more second where they could be struck by arrows. The two armies clashed. The exact arrangement of the Persian army isn't known, but we can make a couple educated guesses. We know that the standard tactic was to plant the Spara shields in the ground to act as a makeshift wall. Behind them, 
the Sparabara would loose arrows until the Greeks were bearing down on them. At that point, the bows went down, and they must have drawn their cigaris axes and short swords. Now it's the Arshtibara, the spear-bearers, that remained kind of a mystery to me. I can't find anyone who suggests whether or not they would be in front of or behind the Spara wall in this situation. On one hand, front and center seems like the appropriate place for them. They're the skirmishers, they're the ones who can fight like the hoplites. On the other hand, this was a defensive formation, so maybe they were positioned immediately behind the Spara, so that when the walls came down, the Greeks were immediately faced with more spears. Either way, the wicker walls came down. The Persians and their warriors from across the Iranian world clashed with a thin center line of the Greek formation and very quickly broke their ranks. They pushed through, creating an opening by which they could escape and attack the hoplites from their undefended rear and sides. Meanwhile, the Greeks crashed through the flanks in a sort of double envelopment forced on them by the geography of the plain, and then forced the Persian flanks into a retreat. Rather than crushing them between the two wings of the Greek army, the left and right wings of the Athenians, increased in manpower and ability by Miltiades' strategy, made an about-face and quickly reinforced their own center line while the Persian flanks fled back to the ships. From the center, the whole Greek army pushed back and turned the tide, forcing the whole Persian army into retreat. They fled back to the ships, with the Greeks in pursuit. Where they could, the Athenians and Plataeans boarded and seized or burned the Persian triremes. But only seven were destroyed, and the rest managed to escape the onslaught. Some Persians, who were chased into the surrounding swamps and marshes, drowned, and others were presumably left behind to die at the hands of the Greeks as the ships fled out to sea. Credit has to be given to Datis and Artifernes at this point. They took this utter disaster, a full rout at the hands of an army half their size, and tried to make something out of it. After taking a couple hours to gather their wits, and probably do a headcount, they picked up the Eritrean captives they had stored on an offshore island, and the Persian generals ordered their ships to turn south, not east. They weren't retreating. Instead, they were going to try and beat the Athenian army back to Athens. But Miltiades guessed their tactic. He took charge of the army, and after a break just long enough to catch their own breath and make an offering at the local shrine of Heracles, he turned his force around and marched them straight back to Athens on the double. Miltiades is the most likely candidate to lead the way at this point, because Callimachus himself had died leading the right wing of the attack. And he was not alone. Herodotus tells us that a number of well-known Athenian politicians, authors, and athletes all perished at Marathon. But that's hardly surprising, given that these prominent figures would have been leading positions in the center lines where the Persians had broken through, if only for a moment. But famous Athenians were not only on the casualty lists. Famed survivors include Xanthippus, a future hero of the second invasion of Greece and father of the much more significant and famous Pericles, as well as Themistocles, the great Athenian general and leader of the next war. 
There was also the playwright Aeschylus, who would go on to immortalize the conflicts with Persia in his play The Persians. He actually lost a brother, uh, Conagrios, in the fight to seize the Persian ships as they fled from Marathon. By the time Dotis and Artaphernes could see the Athenian harbor of Phaleron, the Greek army had arrived back outside Athens, ready for round two. Or probably not ready for round two, but I don't think either side really wanted a hard fight again. Dantas had them stall and wait off the coast, trying to come up with another plan, but ultimately the Persian fleet, the first Persian invasion force to hit mainland Greece, turned around and returned to Asia. In the aftermath of the battle, Herodotus reports that 6,400 Persian soldiers lay dead on the field, but only 192 Athenians and 11 of their Plataean allies. Given his description of the carnage and our existing estimate of 25,000 Persian troops, 6,400 isn't so ridiculous. It's pretty specific numbers as large numbers go, and even though it's a large chunk of the Persian force, it's not unrealistic. Could it be exaggerated? Yeah, probably. But it doesn't change a whole lot about what we're talking about here. 203 Greek dead in a battle where the center line collapsed does seem improbable. Given the many myths that sprung up after the battle, like single men pulling whole ships to shore, the best explanation is the Athenians built up their own legend. Fifty years later, when Herodotus was interviewing Athenians for details about the battle, he must have received, or maybe preferred, a version of the story where the Athenians had exceptionally few losses. One possible explanation is that Herodotus only recounted the number of dead supposedly buried in battlefield monuments. The Athenians erected two burial mounds known as tumuli at Marathon. One houses the ashes, presumably of cremated Athenians, and the other the bodies of 20-some warriors, presumed to be the Plataeans. Cremation was probably the fate of the Persian dead, abandoned during the flight of their countrymen. And I should note that that probably wasn't intended to be any kind of religious offense. Strict Zoroastrian doctrine, setting aside whether or not we actually think the Achaemenids would have followed what is now strict Zoroastrian doctrine, forbids the burning of bodies in fire because it pollutes a sacred element. I would doubt if the Greeks knew that, and I only suspect that cremation was their solution to the massive amount of Persian dead because it's an efficient way to deal with a large number of corpses. For their participation, especially since they were on the left wing which broke through and routed the Persian flank, the Plataeans were honored at Athenian festivals for decades to come. Meanwhile, the Spartans arrived after the battle had been over for days. A force of 2,000 Spartans, so not necessarily a game-changer that had been anticipated, were given a tour of the battlefield while the Athenians were still cleaning it up. It takes a long time to loot and burn 6,000 bodies. After seeing the sights and finding out what exactly a Persian looked like, because they probably hadn't seen a ton of them before, the Spartans congratulated the Athenians and went home. For the third time in about 50 years, the Spartans had been invited to fight the Persians, and the battle never came. Once, when Cyrus conquered Lydia, again, when Aristagoras sought allies for his revolt, and now at Marathon. After Marathon, 
the Athenian soldiers were honored as heroes and defenders of Athenian democracy. That democracy also meant that they went right back to accusing their political rivals of secretly plotting to restore the tyranny and trying to make some material political gains as usual. Miltiades himself had the social and political credit from his success at Marathon to ask for whatever he wanted, no questions asked. He was given a fleet and an army, which he promised to use as a way to enrich Athens. He took his forces to the island of Paros, which he attacked only to be repulsed and returned to Athens, defeated, sick, and wounded. For his failures and apparent attempt to just conquer an island for no reason, he was accused of treason and sentenced to death. Miltiades managed to convince them to lessen his sentence to a fine of 50 talents of silver. That was a gargantuan sum, and Miltiades wound up in a debtor's prison where he died. The fine was eventually paid off over time by his son, the future politician and general Cimon, who we will meet multiple times in the future. Meanwhile, the Persians, though defeated, licking their wounds, and lacking their ultimate prize, returned to their empire successful. We don't hear any more about Datis and Artaphernes after the war, but they delivered the Eritrean and Naxian captives to Persia. There, the captured soldiers were probably put to work on royal monuments at Persepolis and Susa, but the Greeks were ultimately settled in a town near Susa, which Herodotus calls Arderica, probably some kind of royal estate. Arderica was known, apparently, for its naturally accessible petroleum well. The Greeks then made their living by extracting crude oil and salt from the fissure in the earth and maintained contacts with their friends and family still in Greece. What exactly petroleum itself was used for in 490 BC is beyond me. Probably to light lamps, and the Persepolis tablets indicate that there may have been a perceived medical application. I should note that there is no medical application for straight petroleum, and you should neither ingest nor rub yourself down with crude oil. One of the byproducts, which Herodotus notes, was bitumen or asphalt, and that does have a specific ancient use. Ancient asphalt was used as a waterproof sealant on ships and buildings and for embalming the dead. As for Darius himself, we don't hear very much, just that he was angry. Herodotus, of course, portrays this as impassioned fury from a man obsessed with defeating Athens. Like I've said before, that was probably not the case. This was a setback, a major defeat at the hands of an opponent who had been severely underestimated. Those were all reasonable things for the king of kings to be angry about. Symbolically and ideologically, this was also a rebel city not only defeating and renouncing their Persian masters, but forcing them out of territory rightfully ruled by Darius. Remember, Eritrea had fallen to a Persian army, and the city-states of northern Greece had offered earth and water as tokens of surrender. But Athens had indeed ruined everything. The Persians could not hold the Eritrean city or the island of Euboea with their fleet returning home, and so they were abandoned. No Persian army ever marched north back up to Macedon to access and control the Greek cities on their way back into the empire, 
no cousin of the king had been appointed satrap of the Yona Paradraya, the Greeks across the sea. It was a defeat, probably embarrassing, and a clear problem for Darius's plans of expansion. That had to be rectified. This is the real legacy of the first invasion of Greece for the Persians. It was proof that more extreme measures had to be taken to enforce the king of all lands' power in all of the known lands. And with that, I end the Ionian Revolt. Now, I can hear the confusion already, and I'm writing this thing weeks in advance. As far as the Persian perspective is concerned, the only logical framework is that the First Greek War began when the Ionians revolted in 499. That's when Aristagoras abolished the tyrannies and refused to pay tribute. That's when he secured his Athenian and Eritrean allies, and since then, every year has seen some kind of action. 498 saw battles at Sardis and Ephesus. 497 and 496 saw the four-pronged counterattack from Byzantion to Cyprus. 494 and 495 saw the Battle of Laude, the fall of Miletus, and the beginning of mop-up operations. 493 was the year that mop-up operations finished, and Histius of Miletus briefly revived the rebellion. 492 saw Mardonius reassert Persian power in Thrace and Macedon. 491 saw the diplomatic campaign and the submission of cities and islands all over Greece, while a new fleet was constructed and an army assembled. Finally, 490 saw the Persians sweep over the Aegean Islands, burn Eritrea, and finally face their first major defeat at Athens. The traditional framework draws a line between the defeat of Histius and the invasion of Mardonius as two different conflicts, and that's entirely imaginary. It was just a continuation of the existing political situation. Likewise, the campaign of Datis and Artaphernes was just the next logical step to punish the mainland allies of the Ionians. Of course, it was also used as a pretext for expansion, but that doesn't change the continuity of the conflict from one event to the next. The idea of the First Greek War as something that centers around Marathon can't even be called Greek-centric because it would ignore all of the Ionian, Carian, Aeolic, and Cypriot Greeks who fought for the first seven years of this war. Herodotus frames Mardonius's campaign as a failed attempt to march all the way to Athens, probably inaccurately. Traditional historians frame the Battle of Marathon as a war separated from the one that had just been fought in Ionia, but I think that is a mistake. In both cases, it shifts the focus from both the Persians and the Greek world at large, to Athens specifically. So Marathon was not the climactic battle of the first Greco-Persian War, but of the first Athenopersian War. If anything, the first Greco-Persian War peaked at the battles of Laude and Miletus. Hopefully, over the course of the last eight episodes, I've managed to draw a through line all the way from Aristagoras at Naxos, to Dottis at Marathon, and give the First Greek War its due, because as far as the Persian military goals and activities seem to be concerned, 499 to 490 represents the First Greek War, not an Ionian revolt from 499 to 493, 
and a Greek invasion from 492 to 490. At Marathon, Athens won a battle, but looking at the 490s altogether, it's hard to argue that the Persians lost the war. Eritrea was burned and punished, and everything east of that was the Persian Empire. In fact, with the additions of Naxos, Delos, the rest of the Cyclades, and Thassos, the empire had actually grown. Nonetheless, Athens had saved itself, and Darius had his eyes set on Greece. In 489, Darius and his advisors began making plans for a bigger, better invasion, and by 486, an army was actually assembled and ready to go. Disappointingly for Darius, he would never see the Second Greek War, but that will have to wait until our narrative resumes in a few weeks' time. I'm not taking a break, but between now and the rest of the narrative, we have a few more things to talk about. Darius was not just a conqueror, but a statesman, and I have neglected his administrative reforms. There's also the utterly massive issue of his family to talk about, because where Cambyses kept everything neat and organized under one incredibly incestuous roof, Mardonius's genealogy from the last episode should be enough to tell you that's not how Darius did things. There's also another episode on religion in the works, by popular demand. But before I go, I do have some culture to discuss that never quite felt right in the narrative today. What about the race? You didn't think that we were going to get all the way through Marathon without talking about endurance racing, did you? Some of you probably noticed that I neglected to talk about the epic run of Philippides, the Athenian messenger who ran 26.2 miles from Marathon back to Athens, where he announced victory and then promptly died of exhaustion. I didn't talk about this because it is a myth. And not just a myth like Herodotus sometimes talks about fantastical events. That one isn't even in Herodotus, no matter what the pop history article you see every time there's a big race says. The story first appears, in a form, in Plutarch's 1st century CE essay on the glory of Athens, where he cites Heraclides of Pontus to say the runner's name was Thersippus. That's 500 years after the battle. A few decades later, Lucian of Samosata wrote down the same story as Plutarch, but became the first known source to call the runner Philippides. The only running messenger in Herodotus's histories is Phaedipides, who ran for nearly 140 miles to Sparta, not 26 to Athens, and he didn't drop dead. Most manuscripts of Herodotus and earlier sources that cite him call the runner by that name, which I used in the episode, but some medieval copies switched it to Philippides, and that name is now so famous that you'll sometimes see translators exchange the older name to the better known one. So if you have a side-by-side -side translation, the ancient Greek says Phaedipides, and then the English says Philippides. Pheidippides was revered for his efforts, even in ancient Athens. By the time Herodotus was writing, a myth had sprung up that he ran so fast that he attracted the attention of the satyr god Pan, who asked why he wasn't worshipped in Athens, and Philippides, see I just did it myself, Pheidippides made a deal as he ran that in exchange for Pan's aid, 
Athens would build a shrine for him. Pan thus spread panic, which is derived from his name, in the Persian ranks and won the day for Athens. Over time, apparently the myth of a runner exclaiming victory and dying developed, spread, and became the more popular myth over time, while the story of a run to Sparta and the myth of the run to Athens were eventually conflated, and that's where we get the story of Philippides running a marathon and dying while poor Pheidippides is forgotten, even though he got to chat with a god in his story. Fast forward another few hundred years, and when the organizers of the first modern Olympics were coming up with events in the late 19th century, some of them recalled this ancient Greek legend. The event, especially because of its historic ties to Greece through both the Battle of Marathon and the Olympic Games, became extremely popular. And so we got our modern marathon race. From the conflation of one real event with two myths, and some similar-sounding names over the course of about 1,500 years. Now, I think you've heard me talk for long enough. So, until next time, thank you all so much for listening. If you want more information about the podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you can find a newly updated family tree of the whole Achaemenid dynasty and all of their crazy relatives, as well as my bibliography and the support page for the podcast. On the support page, you'll find all of the affiliate products I plug from time to time and ways to financially support the podcast, namely signing up for a subscription through Lyceum or Patreon, where you can get access to ad-free versions of the episodes, additional bonus episodes, and a few other goodies from time to time. The other best way to support the podcast is entirely free, and it just requires that you tell people about it or give me feedback. Tell people on social media about the history of Persia. On Twitter, it's at History of Persia. On Facebook and Instagram, it's the History of Persia podcast. And you can leave reviews to let me know what you think of the show so far on all sorts of podcast platforms these days. Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, and plenty of others, I'm sure. So, until next time, thank you all for listening to the History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.